Please take your Bibles and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Uh, just like with uh, Revelation, we are nearing the end of this book. I think um, probably three more Sundays, including this one. We come tonight to um, what I think that it would comfort us, that it would strengthen us, that it would remind us what lies ahead for us, and that it would, in a sense, like Revelation, fuel our mission as, as a church, that it would remind us uh, that we are moving to an end, and uh, we have a calling while we have breath to, to use the, the time and the talents that we have to uh, bring this good news, the good news of Christ, to uh, a lost and dying and dark world. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning at verse 13. Paul says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Paul, as you know, if you've been here the last um, several weeks, Paul had a great interest in this church. Uh, the Lord had used him to plant this church, and even though he didn't get to stay as long as he would have liked, um, this church was really on his heart. He, he was very concerned about them. They, they lived in a very dark place. They lived in a place of much persecution. And, and Paul, even though he was hindered from going back to Thessalonica, was, was very concerned with how this church was doing. And when he got word from Timothy, you remember he sent Timothy to go find out how they were doing. When he got the report back from Timothy, he was very encouraged. There were a number of things in this church that really brought joy to him. For example, in chapter 1, he, he talks about their work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope. In the same chapter, he, he talks about how eagerly they had received the word of God. The Thessalonians were also faithful witnesses in their community. They were diligent in loving one another. Uh, in spite of persecution, they, they endured their suffering with much joy. Uh, there were a number of things that, that Paul surely gave thanks to God for in this church. But there were some things that they needed instruction about. Some things they, they hadn't quite grasped yet. After all, they were, they were baby Christians. They were brand new believers. Uh, they still had a lot to learn. And, and one of those areas in which they really needed instruction was in answering the question, what happens to believers when they die? Now, now this might sound foreign to us. Those of us who have been in the church for any length of time know that when a, a believer dies, they go immediately into the presence of Christ. There's no soul sleep. 
There's no purgatory. There's no holding tank for some period of time. They go right into Christ's presence. And we know that when Jesus returns, the, the bodies of dead believers will be immediately raised. But again, these were baby Christians. They, they didn't know this. They, they hadn't been taught this yet. And, and as they lived in a city where they were being persecuted, some of them had probably lost their lives for being Christians. Some of them had probably died from sickness or old age. And, and now the Christians in this church are wondering what's going to happen to them. When, when Jesus returns, are they going to miss out? That's the question they were asking. In addition to this, you, you might know that, that they, were, they were brought up in and indoctrinated in Greek culture. Greek culture had a, a dualism, a dualistic thinking. In Greek mind, that which is physical is bad. That which is spiritual is good. And so the, the thought of a resurrected physical body made no sense to them. And so Paul writes this section of 1 Thessalonians to instruct them about the second coming of Christ. And in a sense, he's writing this to us as well. This is something that God has inspired and preserved in his word for all of these years so that we would be taught as well about Christ's second coming. And there are four things I want you to see tonight. Number one, the second coming is not a mystery. Second, the second coming provides us with great hope. Third, the second coming will be unmistakable. And fourth, the second coming is meant to encourage us. It's not a mystery. It provides us with great hope. It will be unmistakable. And it is meant to encourage us. Now, there are some things in life that are mysteries. You, you know this already. There are some things in life that God has chosen not to reveal to us. If you were to come to me tonight after the service and you were to ask me, Pastor, where does God want me to live? I, I would have to say to you, I don't know. God has not revealed that to us. Now, he certainly told us we should probably live in a place where there's a faithful church, but, but beyond that, you're going to have to pray for wisdom. You're going to have to pray for providential direction. Some things God has chosen not to reveal to us, but that's not true with the second coming. Notice how Paul begins this passage. He says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers. God reveals the truth of the second coming for our benefit. We, we shouldn't be in ignorance about this doctrine. We, we shouldn't say, oh, it doesn't really matter that much. I don't need to know anything about it. I mentioned this morning in the sermon that, that there are Christians who will say eschatology doesn't really matter. The doctrine of last things isn't really all that practical. But it does matter. It, it, it is practical. God doesn't want us to be uninformed. That, that word uninformed in verse 13 means not to know or not to understand. God wants you to know. God wants you to understand. I mean, think about the, think about the relevance of the second coming for your Christian life. First of all, imagine, imagine not knowing about the return of Christ. Imagine not knowing that Jesus was going to come back one day. Imagine how, how despairing you would be to live in this culture, to live in the day in which we live. Or, or worse, yet, worse yet, imagine not caring about the return of Christ. 
Wouldn't would that have an impact on how you live your life? Wouldn't that affect your priorities and your plans? Wouldn't that affect the way you view this world and where it's headed? But second, on the, on the flip side, imagine living your life with the very firm awareness and the very real knowledge that one day Jesus will return. One day he's going to come back. Don't you think that affects your priorities? Don't you think that affects the things that you focus on, for example, with your children? And and honestly, I think most of us probably tend to drift more closely to the first view than the second view. Not not that we don't think Jesus will return, but, but we might think that that's something way, way, way in the distance. It's not gonna happen in my lifetime, but we don't know that, do we? Knowing that Jesus could return at any moment should, should affect us, should impact us. And so Paul wants these Thessalonian Christians to know what God says about death, to know what God says about the second coming. He doesn't want them to live in ignorance, and the same is true for us. I, I would encourage all of us to maybe think about that this week. Maybe take a few minutes at home or at work Maybe take a few minutes when you're laying in bed and can't sleep at night and and ask yourself the question, how does the future return of Christ affect my life? How does the future return of Christ affect my priorities? What things might I need to change in my life knowing that one day Jesus will return? And so it's not a mystery God doesn't want us to be in ignorance about this. He wants us to know and he wants it to impact our lives. Jesus is coming. Children, one day Jesus will return. We do not know when. It could be in this service. We do not know. One day he will return. Second, the second coming provides us with great hope. This is one of the reasons why I read this passage at a graveside service is because at that time we need hope. Paul says here, I don't want you to grieve as those who have no hope. If you've ever been around an unbeliever in the face of death, you know that typically the unbeliever has no hope. And if they have any hope, it's a false hope. Because the unbeliever has a false view of God or a false view of the gospel. In other words, there are, there are many people who think that you know, God is just a God of love. He, he's kind, he's loving, He's not going to punish anyone. He's going to take everyone to heaven when they die. In addition, there are many people who think that they can get to heaven on the basis of their own record, that their good works will get them into heaven. But the unbeliever fails to understand that God is a just God, that God is a holy God, and that the only way anyone can get into heaven is by perfect righteousness, which Jesus Christ alone provides. And deep down, since since God has written his law on the hearts of every person, the unbeliever knows in his heart of hearts that he has failed to keep God's law. He knows that he is accountable to God. And, And so in the face of death, there is no hope for the unbeliever. But here, Paul says to these Christians, I want you to have hope. By the way, did you notice a couple of things? Did you notice, first of all, Paul references those who are asleep. He says it, I think, two or three times. 
That's an interesting way to, to describe dead people. Paul says they are asleep. Makes us think of, of an account in the Gospel of Matthew, something that Jesus said. I think it was Matthew chapter 9. The, uh, the ruler of a synagogue, his daughter dies. And the synagogue ruler comes to Jesus and, and he says, Jesus, my, my daughter is dead. She's just died. And so Jesus goes with this man to this man's house. And, and when Jesus gets there, you remember the scene. There's, there's all these professional wailers who people would hire in that day to wail during, during a period of death and mourning. There's all these wailers there and they're wailing and weeping. People are in grief. And you remember what Jesus said to them? Jesus said, the girl is not dead. She's sleeping. Now, now when Jesus said this, he, he wasn't saying, you people are all wrong. She's not really dead. She's just taking a nap. That wasn't Jesus' point. He uses the word sleep to, to basically say her death is only temporary. It's not going to last. I'm going to bring her back to life. And that's exactly what Jesus did. And so here, when, when Paul talks about those who are sleeping, he gives a very subtle hint to the Thessalonians that their believing loved ones who have died will not remain in death. Their death is only temporary. Their bodies will not remain in the grave. And so don't miss that word, asleep. Secondly, though, did you also notice Paul doesn't say, if you're a Christian, you should never grieve. He doesn't say that. There, there might be those who are Christians who take that attitude that, that if you're a, a believer, it's ungodly or unspiritual to grieve. That's a horrible thing to tell a Christian. That's a horrible thing to, to tell a Christian who has just lost a loved one to say, well, you shouldn't grieve. Death is an unwanted intruder. It's a, it's a horrible thing. It's not what, what God intended in his original creation, and yet, because of sin, death, the Bible says, death entered the world. And it's natural for us, it's normal for us to grieve when someone dies. The difference, though, for the Christian is that we don't grieve without any hope. And the reason we don't grieve without any hope is because of what Paul says here in verse 14. He says, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Brothers and sisters, death is not the end of the story. Death doesn't get the final word. We, we have great hope. And you notice the basis for our hope, it's not what we have done. It's not what we've earned. It's not what we've merited. It's not what we've performed. It's, it's not some wishful thinking. The basis for our hope is what Jesus has done. See what Paul says there? He says, Jesus died and rose again. Children, Jesus died, didn't he? About 2,000 years ago, Jesus hung on a Roman cross. And there came a point when he breathed his last breath and he was dead. Why did he die? 
He died to pay the penalty for, for all of our sins. He died to, to free you from the judgment that you deserve. And then they, they took his body off the cross and they put it in the grave. But death couldn't hold him. Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead, victorious over sin and death and hell. And his resurrection was proof that he was who he claimed to be and that he did what he came to do. His resurrection was proof of that. He came to free us from our sin. He came to give us eternal life. And when he rose from the dead, that was God's stamp that he accomplished what he came to do. Now you know that if Jesus is not risen from the dead, we're in big trouble. You are in and I am in a serious heap of trouble if Jesus is not dead. You you hear people today, supposed Bible scholars and theologians of the liberal variety who will say, well, it doesn't really matter if Jesus is really resurrected from the dead. What matters is he's risen in your heart or some mumbo jumbo like that. That's not what the Bible says. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if if Christ isn't raised, your faith is in vain. Paul says if, if Christ isn't raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Paul says if Christ isn't raised, we Christians are of all people the most to be pitied. Because we've believed a lie. But Christ is risen. He is risen. And because he is risen, we have this great hope. We have this hope that when he returns, he will bring with him all those who have died. In other words, what what happened to Jesus will happen to us. Jesus died. Jesus rose again. And because Jesus died and rose again, we too, yes, we will die, but we will rise again. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians that that Jesus was the first fruits. 1 Corinthians 15, 20, he says, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The the first fruits is the, the initial sample of the crop. They are indicating what the rest of the crop will be like. In other words, Christian, do you want to know what lies in store for you after you die? Just look at Jesus, and that will tell you. Just like Jesus, you too will be raised one day with a glorious resurrection body that will be yours. As the Heidelberg Catechism says in Lord's Day 17, Christ's resurrection is a sure pledge. It is a guarantee of our blessed resurrection. So here are these Christians in Thessalonica and they're confused. They're wondering what's going to happen to to our dead, believing loved ones. Maybe tonight you are mourning. Maybe tonight you need comfort. And Paul gives this very, very helpful instruction. He goes on in verse 15 He says, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Don't you love that phrase, by a word from the Lord? 
This is God's promise. This isn't Paul. This, this isn't Paul's wishful thinking. This isn't Paul going, you know, here's, here's what I think will happen one day. This is God's word to you tonight. This is God's promise. God doesn't lie. He doesn't break his promise. And his promise is that no believer, whether whether dead or alive, no believer is going to miss out on the return of Jesus. And so tonight, we we can look for the return of our Savior with with an eager expectation. We, We may or may not be alive when he returns. We all hope and pray that we are. But we don't know. But at his return, it will be a joyful day, a joyful reunion with all who have believed in him. Number three, the second coming of Christ will be unmistakable. Paul says in verse 16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. Our dispensational brothers and sisters who uh, believe in what is called a secret rapture, they like to use this passage as um, proof text for their rapture doctrine. But they have a problem here that they don't really know what to do with. And the problem is that this is far from a secret event. There's nothing secret here. This This is not a... This is not a cosmic dog whistle that's heard only by the Christians. People aren't going to be going on the day when Christ comes back, hey, what happened to Joe? Where'd he go? They're not going to say, have you heard all those, all those different theories about what happened to all those people? The return of Jesus is going to be unmistakable. Notice four things about his return. First of all, it's going to be personal. When Jesus ascended into heaven after his resurrection, children, you remember that, right? Jesus ascended to heaven. When he ascended to heaven, 40 days after his resurrection, it was a visible ascent. Acts chapter 1 tells us that the disciples actually watched as Jesus went up into heaven. And you remember in Acts chapter 1, the disciples are standing there and, and they're watching as Jesus goes up into heaven. And two angels show up. And the two angels say to the disciples, Men of Galilee, why are you standing there looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Just as Jesus ascended into heaven visibly and and personally, so he will return one day visibly and personally. He's not going to send a representative. He's not going to send a team of representatives. He himself is going to come. Now that's an amazing thought when you think about it. One day we will see him as he returns. Secondly, Christ's return will be loud. Paul says things like a cry of command, the voice of an archangel, the sound of the trumpet of God. The the picture here is is a voice of great power and authority. 
You know, the only time an archangel is mentioned or identified in the Bible, it's Michael the archangel. So perhaps this is Michael, we don't know. Angels are are powerful, supernatural creatures. But again, the imagery here that this is loud, this is an unmistakable event, and the trumpet of God is being blown. That's interesting. Did you know that in the Old Testament, um, trumpets were used for a couple of different reasons. We we have trumpets today in, in worship at times to enhance our singing, enhance the music. Uh, in, the, in the Old Testament, trumpets were blown, first of all, to call God's people to assemble. A trumpet would be blown to, to call God's people to gather together. That was the case at Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19, as a, a trumpet was blown to meet with God at Mount Sinai. But there were other occasions in the Old Testament where, where a trumpet was blown as a symbol of God rescuing his people. I think both of those are true here. Christ is coming back and he is is calling his people, dead and alive, to himself. And he's rescuing us out of this present evil age and the judgment that is coming. His coming will be loud. It will be unmistakable. Third, Christ's return will bring the resurrection. You know, if I'm still alive when Jesus comes back, the one place I would love to be is in a cemetery. Imagine, when Jesus comes back, the dead in Christ will rise first. I have an opportunity to do many, many graveside services here in Ripon. Imagine, when the Lord Jesus returns, amazing to see dead believers being raised from the grave. All believers who have died will be raised and they will be raised with these glorious resurrection bodies. Our bodies start to fail us. Our minds start to fail us. We feel pain and aches and other problems we didn't feel 10, 20 years ago. One day, those will be no more. And, and, and then those believers who are alive will be, will be caught up with the resurrected believers and together we will meet Jesus in the air. You see that word meet? It's a very interesting word. It's a word that, that refers to what would happen when a, when a king or some other really important person would come into a certain town. What would happen is that when the When the king was on the outskirts of the town, all the the residents of that town would would come out to meet him with great celebration, great fanfare. And, And then after they went out to meet the king, they would go with the king back into their town. In other words, you could you could picture a king coming to Ripon. And, and when he gets to uh West Ripon Road and Austin, kind of the outskirts of Ripon. We all go out there to meet this king. And then we all return back into Ripon. And and so rather than this being some secret rapture where Jesus comes and and raptures his church and then Jesus makes a great U-turn in the sky and goes back to heaven, that's not what's being pictured here. Jesus is coming back and, and we will meet the king of kings before the king comes down in judgment. 
And it's not just those, those dead believers who will get glorious resurrection bodies. Everyone who is living, every Christian who is living at the time will also get a glorious resurrection body. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In other words, we're, we're not all gonna die. Some will be living when Jesus returns, but we're all gonna be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound The dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed. You're going to be given a glorious, imperishable resurrection body. What an amazing reality that is. And then number four, the fourth thing we want to notice here is that Christ's return will usher in the eternal state. Paul says in verse 17, And so we will always be with the Lord. I don't really need to say anything about that. You know what that means. It's wonderful to to meditate on that reality. How many times have we thought to ourselves, I wish Jesus was here. I mean, he is with us in his spirit, but the day's coming when we will always be with him. Now, we don't know a whole lot of details about the eternal state, but, but one thing we do know, Jesus will be there, and we will be with him. One final thing this passage tells us, and that is that the second coming is meant to encourage us. I've said this to you already in the, in the series on Revelation. I don't want to belabor the point, but the second coming is not designed to scare us as Christians. It's not designed to confuse us. It's not designed to puzzle us. It's not designed to make us grab our newspapers or watch TV and try and figure out all the details of the second coming. The fact that Jesus is coming is meant to encourage us. Paul says in verse 18, therefore, encourage one another with these words. That that Greek word that's translated encourage is the Greek word parakletos. Paraclete. It's the same word that's used of the Holy Spirit who is called the parakletos. He is called the comforter in John 14. And so better translated, Paul is saying in verse 18, comfort one another with these words. Christian, the return of Jesus should comfort you. It's going to put an end to death and sorrow and pain and loss and mourning. All of that will be no more. Your Savior who died for you, who loves you, who rose again for you, one day he's going to come back for you and for all of his people. And there will be a joyful reunion on that day. Horatio Spafford wrote, It is well with my soul. Many of you know the context in which he wrote it. I'm not going to go over it, but it was a period of tremendous grief for Horatio Spafford. And in that hymn, he put it well. He said, And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound And the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. 
He's coming. He's coming. All that sadness and grief and mourning will be no more. All of our sin and pain and sorrow will be no more. I pray tonight that you know that comfort. If you don't, I I would be more than happy to talk to you and tell you the good news of what Jesus did for sinners like us. This passage is meant to strengthen us tonight. To go into this week and say, yes, Lord, I am so thankful that my Savior will come again one day and put an end to all of this. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us tonight. We thank you for the comfort and the encouragement it brings to us as believers. We thank you for what the Lord Jesus has won for us in his life, death, and resurrection. Father, strengthen us, encourage us, ease our mourning. Although we do mourn, we do not mourn as those without hope. We have a great hope. Lord, help us to to live that hope out and to be joyful Christians and to take this good news to those around us. Father, how we long for that day when our faith shall be sight, when we see our Savior face to face. We pray this in his name.